0: is in one accord, Paul says in the book of Romans. One accord, meaning we believe what we sing. We sing it together to you as an act of worship. And so Lord, we thank you for the, the blessing of worship. Most of the world does not worship you. They worship themselves. They worship other idols, people, things, money. But Lord, you've called Christians to worship you. We've done that this morning. We see that as a very vital part of our church service, to worship and honor and glorify you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, the eternal God of glory. And Lord, now we turn to your word. This is your word. It's not man's word. It's not government's word. It's your word. The almighty, sinless, perfect, inerrant God speaking to us through his word. We don't have to change it. We don't have to reinterpret it we can study it and know that it comes from you and we can find great truth to live our lives by and have great hope for the future so lord i pray you would cause us to be attentive our ears listening to your word us not only being listeners but doers of it as well lord thank you for those that are there here this morning so many fill the house of the lord here this morning many online watching But many who can't be here, Lord, they're struggling from illness or surgery or some procedure, Lord, and we miss them and we pray for their healing, Lord, that you would care for them. You are the great physician, but your will be done is always better than ours. And so we pray for your will and those who cannot be with us today. We thank you for our missionaries, Lord, around the world. What a joy to communicate with them. They're singing the same songs, preaching the same word of God, different language, Different culture, different place, same truth. And so we pray you encourage them, strengthen us, help us give to the ministry so we can care for them and help plant more churches around the world, being more involved with the gospel going around the world. Father, we, Father, we do pray for Paul Anthes' family, Lord, the ministry in Congo. Lord, we pray that as others, including our own church, strives to pick up the mantle there, that you would give us strength. But we ask that you would be with their family, Lord. We pray for his wife, Jenny. We pray that you strengthen her. We pray for Jason and Joel and Hannah and Abby, their children, their grandchildren, their church that Paul pastored for so many years, Lord. We pray for comfort for them, Lord. I pray you give me words as I speak at the... Memorial service, Lord, help me, Lord. Direct me to that passage that will strengthen and encourage those of us who press on. But we do thank you for the life and ministry of Paul Anthos. Lord, we now turn to the hope of the resurrection. There is great hope there. We pray that you would stir our hearts, Lord. Keep us from those who try to rob hope. Try to rob in uh, false teaching, false doctrine, Lord. We pray that even this passage will see those things, Lord. So our hope will be in you, in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hope is a very important thing. Have you ever met somebody who's lost hope? Have you ever spent time with somebody who's lost hope? Maybe medically they've given up. They don't think they're going to survive. Usually it seems they don't last long when they don't have hope. Maybe you met somebody who has given up hope on their marriage. Hope on their relationship in some way. Those those are hard times, isn't it? And you, God sends you into that situation to give hope. And, And just worldly wisdom or your own experience will always fall short in that case. You'll maybe try to slap them on the back and say it'll be okay. That doesn't work, does it? You need something greater than that. That's the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hope that God will resurrect, put us, his children, in his presence in bodily form. There is no greater hope than the resurrection. Now certainly the Lord may return and he will gather us to be with him, those who are alive when he returns. But if we die before that time, we have the hope of the resurrection. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so our soul and spirit is with the Lord immediately after death. But God will resurrect the body, and it gives us great hope. Christianity, listen, brothers and sisters, Christianity is a, is a religion, if you want to call it that, of hope. Our hope is in Christ. And the moment you get your hope out for Christ, you struggle. And you can find yourself feeling hopeless at times. Well, these are the things that Apostle Paul is dealing with throughout the book of Corinthians. There's been false teachers that have integrated their way into this church, and they are constantly teaching things that rob the hope from the believers. And today's passage is just like that. When we look at verses 29 through 30 in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have your Bibles, I certainly invite you to open them there. Um, We find ourselves at the halfway point of this very large passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a very large passage, 58 verses in all. But it come to one of the most intriguing and most fascinating passages, and it contains a verse, the very first one we're going to take on, that has been abused for, well, probably since it was written. And many misinterpretations, many false views have come out of this verse. But Paul's on a mission. He is on a mission, and particularly in this chapter, to bring the hope of a bodily Resurrection. He's attacking these false teachings head on, and he's been doing it from verse 1. You remember in verses 1 through 4, he gives probably one of the clearest articulations of the gospel. I loved preaching that, those verses. What a joy. I'm wrestling with whether to preach them at Paul's he, Paul's funeral. Paul, Paul loved those verses. Him and I talked in about those clear, articulate of the gospel in verses 1 through 4. He transitions from that, and you remember that in the gospel is the resurrection. That launches him into this understanding and his hope in the gospel. In verses 5 through 10, he walks down through the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Here's all the people that saw the bodily resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no denial that he has come out of that grave. Verses 11 through 17, Paul gives seven. Remember the seven tragic results to our lives if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. They're tragic, and you'll remember that as you go back and think through those verses in the sermons. And then he gets to verses 20 through 27, and here he begins to now remind us, and he starts with this great conjunction, but now, you know, saying, yes, that's, that would be tragic if he did not raise from the dead, but he did raise from the dead. And that's what we see in verse 20. And he has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who fallen asleep. And so there's this now glorious expectation as we live between two resurrections. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and our future resurrection. And we live between those. And there's a glorious anticipation of a coming Savior. And we're reminded of the eschatological reign of Christ and his kingdom. And how he subjects all things to himself. He is a sovereign ruler with all power and all authority. But then, verse 28, we ended with this a couple of weeks ago that when the Son has finished all things, He delivers the kingdom, everything that pertains, the gospel and all those who are in it, both life and judgment and death and all of that, He delivers that all back to the sovereign rule of God Himself. And so the Father had commissioned the Son, He'd given Him everything, He'd given Him all authority. And at the completion of the son's work, he comes back in this ultimate sovereign act of giving it all back to the father. And we'll be there to watch it all happen. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. But now, the apostle Paul has been using the resurrection to create hope and obedience. To lead to worship. Remember, one of the issues that had fallen apart in this church was true worship. Every man was doing as he pleased. There was, there was a breakdown in fellowship and worship. But he's been teaching here that there is a physical glorified bodies. He's, God is preparing us for eternity. He's preparing our hearts and minds, our bodies he'll take care of. Now he, he works on our hearts and minds as we prepare to go to eternity. And the fact that you and I will be in heaven, and this is one of his drums that he's been beating There'll be a bodily, uh, we'll be there bodily in perfect bodies and souls before the Lord. And I think what Paul keeps driving home throughout this passage is that I will be me, you will be you, you will be recognizable, that will be a beautiful experience. And Paul's driving that point home. This is not some resurrection and you turn out into some sparklies floating out there somewhere in some surreal experience. This is very physical and very true and very much in the presence of of our Lord and Savior. The Bible is not silent on all this. Even the Old Testament, Job said that, I know that in my flesh I will see God. What a statement. Job possibly even before Abraham or somewhere in that time, we believe Job, Job was in that time. There's no Israel. There's no priest. There's, there's none of those things. Job was written so early and early on he says, in my flesh, right here, flesh and blood, I'll see Jesus. I'll see God. I'll be with him. Moses and Elijah were recognizable, and they were distinguished between each other on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus Christ was glorified there before the apostles, Jesus said, Where I am, you will be with me. Not some sparkly you. If you're a believer, where Jesus is, you're going to be with him. It's a promise that he's come to return to take you to where he is. You will be with him. These are promises that give us great hope. Paul said this, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, it's not much gain if you're just floating around out there in the stars somewhere. There's great gain. Because he said, he went on to say, for it's far better to depart and be with Christ. Far better. That's where we're going. And so... Most of the apostles and many of the patriarchs and matriarchs, they suffered horrendous death. I did a cursory read just thinking about this through Hebrews chapter 11. That's a challenging text to read through. Yes, it's by faith, Moses, by faith, Abraham, by faith, by faith, by faith, all the way down there. But as you work your way down, you start to get into death and not just any death, gruesome deaths. You get into dismemberments. You get into stoning. You get into horrific death that men and women who sold out for their God and Savior died. And then the Bible ends this way in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 35, ends that chapter this way. It says, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Why would they go through that? Why would you be sawn in two if there was no resurrection? If there was nothing after this life but sparklies and maybe floating around somewhere. Oh, there's so much more. And when we get into 1 Corinthians, we see Paul working hard to help the reader understand that there is a physical bodily resurrection coming. And if it weren't true, he says, we are most pity; we're the biggest fools there is. He's staking his whole life on this. Now... As we get to verse 29, we find a very difficult verse. I'll admit it's difficult. And it has suffered at the hands of many false teachers since the day it was written. But Paul, once again, is going to root out false teachers. This is what he's been doing through the book of 1 Corinthians. Not only has he spoken of such great doctrine, such great truth, we've heard everything from marriage, to the role of the church, to so many great doctrines through it. But all the way through it, he exposes false teachers because he knows they rob hope from the believers. And once again, he's going to root out those who've rejected the full gospel. Now remember, you can say, oh, I believe in Jesus that he died on, the si- died on the cross. Well, there's a lot of religions that believe that. In fact, they still leave him on a cross in their little signas. So a lot of people believe that. That's not the full gospel. If he doesn't get out of that grave, if he's not resurrected, you're still in your sins. Because there's no proof that Christ could beat death. And so the full gospel is the resurrection. And so those who are teaching in Paul's day, and even today, who fail to teach the resurrection of Christ, the full gospel, rob people of hope. But notice Paul's determined to prove that if Christ's body is resurrected, those who place their faith in him alone will be resurrected as well. That is his goal. So Paul has always seen a bodily resurrection of believers as the source of hope. And he gets extremely annoyed. You'll see this in this text. You'll see his sarcasm. You'll see some sharp barbs that come out of him. Men, they're inspired. Yours are not. Remember that? Um, they come out pretty sharp in this text. Because he does not want people robbed of the truth. He is, he's a mama bear fighting for her cubs. He's a shepherd fighting for the sheep. And you hear that as we go through this text. That leads us to point number one. Number one, rooting out those who attempt to rob the hope of the resurrection. Rooting out those who attempt to rob the hope of the resurrection. Look at verse 29 with me. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Otherwise, what will those... Excuse me, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, there's a text that has been abused, mostly now by non-Christian groups. By now, Christians, if they know their Bibles and know the gospel, they know that there cannot be any works that get somebody into heaven. And so we come to this term, baptism for the dead, wasn't too long ago, and I can still remember uh, the chap that took on this passage in seminary. Uh, using in seminary you'll have a class or two where you're handed a passage, a very, a, a little more difficult, a little more challenging passage. I still remember mine, Matthew chapter 16, where I had to discuss whether Peter was the rock or was Christ the rock that he was speaking of. And I'd take on all the views and challenge that. But I remember a dear friend of mine took on this text. And I remember him saying he, sa- he found Dozens and dozens of interpretations of this. And he found even more views where churches and religions had staked their claim on this thing. And so it is a tremendously abused verse. But in time of this letter being written, and here's what we need to understand. This was yet another false belief that had worked its way into the Corinth church. Now remember the context is the resurrection. That's the context of the passage. You can't get away from that. And that's got to be understood to rightly interpret the passage. And this letter has, has a strong rebuke carrying it. It's all the way through it. But I believe what's happening now is Paul's going to address the practice of those who are being baptized for the dead. That's what he's after here. He wants to expose them. Now notice, he confronts only those few people who observe this practice. Now look at verse 29 with me. Notice he says this in the second part of it. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are... Now here's a pronoun that we don't see him use tremendous amount. They. Now Paul is famous for his use, either singular or plural. You can see that in the Greek a little easier than you can in English. But as you read, you can realize he's talking about a plural use. Here, in a rare time, he uses the word they. And what we believe he's doing is he's singling out these people who have made their way into the Corinth church that are teaching this false doctrine of baptizing for the dead. This is not Paul's custom. This is not the custom of the early church. This is a false teaching that's made its way in. Now, Paul's doctrine of uh, soteriology would clearly denounce this. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, how somebody gets saved, right? That's what that term means. So here he comes against uh, an errant doctrine that just runs smack dab into the doctrine of salvation. It It is absolutely against Paul's doctrine of salvation. And we know that it isn't hard to study. There's no work that you can be identified in. Now, notice the little word baptized, right? We know that word, right? Baptismo, that's a Greek word. We brought it over to English. We didn't do a very good job bringing it over. But it literally means to be identified or fully immersed in something, right? And and so that, that tells us, when we have baptisms on Sunday nights here, that tells us that those people, that God has saved them and he has placed them fully immersed in his son, fully enveloped in his son. That, That baptism tells us that we're identified in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. But is baptism salvation? Well, if it is, then we did something to gain our salvation, and that goes against all of what Scripture teaches. There are none righteous, no, not one. No one can add to their salvation. No one can do something to gain what only God can do. Is that not true? And so we know right from our understanding of salvation that baptizing for somebody who's dead, trying to identify them in Christ after they're dead, this is running into all kinds of theological problems. And so right now, we, our antennas are upright And we're going, there's a problem here. Someone is trying to identify somebody else, whether living or dead, into Jesus Christ. And that is impossible. Now... There's no evidence that any of the churches throughout the apostolic era practiced this type of baptism. It was nowhere else. It's never addressed in Scripture anywhere else. And throughout Christendom, these practices have been denounced as unbiblical and connected with apostate teaching all the way through. Now, the Corinth church had allowed worldly religious practices to come in. Right? We saw that. As we work through uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, we see these worldly practices that have come in. They want to bring their old old worship and their old pagan temples. They want to bring that in or they want to go participate with those things. And Paul is after them in that they've been deceived and they're, they're joining themselves to something that's not of God. And so we've seen him do this before and yet he's doing it again here. Now, Throughout the church age, many false religions have tried to integrate this practice. Now, there's some reasons why. Well, one, when we look at it, it's often associated with occultic practices. They're, they're, they're trying to do something that only God can do. They're trying to have man have authority over souls of other people. I have, I have no control over your soul. I, I don't, I, and praise God, I don't. There is only one, who knows and controls your soul, and that's God Almighty. He has control over that. But Christians with poor theology, or those who say they're Christians, have bought in this time at times. Early on, it started like this: there was those who, um, who died, and they. They professed Jesus Christ, and yet they died in a way where the early church couldn't get them to baptism. And so somebody in that church said, Oh, well, oh, they were never baptized and they died. They got hit by a chariot and, and they, they, on the way to the baptism and didn't make it. So, what do we do? How, how do we make sure they're identified in Christ? Study your Bible. That's where you start. <laughs> that baptismal doesn't save anybody. <laughs> it just tells us who is saved. And so they started this practice. It started working its way even in the early Christendom at times, and Paul's rooting it out here. Then we start to look at the translation here. This is very important. Notice this word for. Look with me. It says, um, what will those that would be connected to they do who are baptized for the dead. Well, that little Greek preposition is the word who pair. Now, who pair is a, a great preposition. We love prepositions because they talk about position. Uh, it's used, Paul says 168 times that we're in Christ. What a great prepositional phrase. So who pair" is a very important little preposition there, but it can be translated in a lot of ways, right? Instead of above it, it, it's it, it, there's a lot of ways to translate that little word but it's based in the context now one of them in this early going on in this group probably around here and others that came along would later translate this word as above now they they began to say that that here the bible is telling us that we should baptize the dead uh who are who are to be baptized Above the dead. So what they actually did, what was astounding, is those loved ones that they were concerned about their salvation, friends and family, they wanted them to be in the resurrection, and so they literally had baptisms above their grave. See, This is when you don't handle the text really well. You get this crazy thing, and there's people down at the cemetery, and they're baptizing people above the grave in order to symbolically identify them into Christ because they weren't sure about them. See, this ventures into second chance theology, which most religions outside of Bible believing Christians believe in. When you're dead, you are dead. There ain't no coming back. There's no second chance. The rich man with Lazarus, he's in hell. Rich man, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, a place reserved for going to heaven in great comfort. He never asks how he can get to heaven, he knows he's done. And yet man isn't happy with that. We see this type of baptism that really gets flushed out into occults like Mormonism. This is what Mormons do. They baptize vicariously for someone else. If you're a Mormon, when you go to be baptized, they want a list of names that you would want to make sure that you can be baptized for who are already dead not there. So you can secure their salvation and in their theology which is errant as can be that's about getting a, 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 a smaller heaven there's three levels of heaven and you, you, you've probably studied some of that you're not getting to the third one that's for sure but maybe you can get them in the first if you're baptized for them works based theology deadly sounds good to the flesh oh if I could do something for that my poor uncle Joe it, it, it appeals to the flesh but it's deadly And this is what's going on in here. Now, as we looked a little farther into church history, the book of Maccabees came out, an uninspired book. And in that book it said, uh, Maccabees 1240, that they were told to pray for the dead. What are you going to do for the dead? What are you going to pray for them? I I, I don't even know where you begin. Don't let it be as hot as, I, I I don't know where you go with that. But yet they took that and they said, well, if we pray for the dead, why don't we baptize for the dead? And then then that becomes part of a religious belief that makes its way through all kinds of false teaching. And so, with every one of these leave out, you know what is most important. They leave out faith alone, by Christ alone, through grace alone. Then they have no salvation. That's what happens. Well, I'll do this in order for him to gain that same thing in our own life right well uh, well i'm good i'm not like that other person i did this i attended church i gave money i did all these things you're going to go to hell friend you cannot base your salvation on what you've done we're all sinners there's none righteous no not one because there's always that one person that thinks they are righteous you're not going salvation is through christ alone through faith alone through grace alone and when you study these false teachings they eliminate all of that and thus they're not saved and why we still pray for them while they're alive. And we share the gospel and we get this right. Yes, it's offensive because it pulls man out of it. You know why people get offensive? Why they're offended? Because, because you say they got nothing to offer. And they'll go, well, you don't know me. I'm not like that. I, I'm good. I do all these things. I vote it." Man, that's a lie from the pit of hell. We are born sinners born, alienated from God, the Bible says. It is only by God's pure grace and love that he opens our hearts and floods into our mind the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and our need for him. That is the only way to salvation. And if you're here today and you think there's other ways, my friend, you're lost. There's only one way, and this is what Paul is after. Now, another preposition that I've seen and read on where people have thought, I think, good intention. And there's some good men I, that I even agree with in a lot of things that hold this, is they take hyper and they, they translate it because, because of the dead. Now, this, this could have some validity. How many people have been saved because they went to a memorial service of someone who loved the Lord Jesus? Maybe they read a biography of a missionary who gave their life for the Lord Jesus Christ and they got saved. I, I think that's a valid word. pair can be translated because it's a valid translation of that Greek word into English. And, and that might be true. But I, I think as we study this passage, it's focusing on the resurrection And Paul is focusing on rooting out false teachers. And so, though I think that might be a good uh, view, and I think there's truth to that, right? A lot of Christians who died have had great impact on my life. I love reading biographies of Christians who walked with the Lord in difficult times. But I think Paul is rooting out the false teachers. Now let's look at the the text itself again and examine it. Paul says, otherwise... What will those who what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Well, the word otherwise brings your attention back to these previous verses, right? Where he's been speaking about all the implications of the resurrection, all the the great things that come from the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is resurrected, we're resurrected, the great hope and promise, and that's that's why he's making this analogy to here, And, and now and this is key, look at this, Paul is arguing that if the resurrection was never going to happen, now you can see this in this verse, look at it, why in the world are people being baptized for the dead? See, remember, he's fighting against a group that says there's no resurrection. And then they are baptizing for the dead. Are you for the resurrection or are you for you not? Because if you say there's no resurrection, why are you baptizing the dead? It doesn't make any sense. And this is where, this is where, um, occultic and false teachers go. If you follow their argument around, it's circular reasoning, it doesn't make sense, and it's certainly not supported by the Scriptures, and Paul's pointing that out clearly here. Now, the word baptized is in a present tense here, meaning this is ongoing, right? This is, they've been doing this, and so Paul's just asking the simple question, why? <laughs> why are you doing this? If you're telling people there's no resurrection, why are you teaching this? Look at the second question he asks in verse 29 if the dead are not raised, now notice that little phrase, at all. If there's no resurrection at all, why then are they, and he's pointing out that group, those people who are doing that, are baptizing for them? See, both these questions stress the issue of baptism for the uh, dead was being practiced by just a few within this church, but it was nonsense if the dead are never going to come out of the grave. If you're just some kind of spirit being floating around out there why are you doing this so now you can see where religions other than those who believe in Christ alone for salvation they'll take these verses out of context because they don't have the spirit of God and they use them to teach false views of salvation some heretical second chance theology this is the only passage they do that out of they use um. Uh, 2 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 3, where Jesus ascends down into, the, into Hades to preach over the demons and tell him he beat them with the cross. They use that as a second Chet's theology too, way, way out of the context. See, they're so worried that, that these people just, it's not fair, right? And that's why people don't reject, reject Jesus Christ and go, so, well, it's not fair, they don't like election. They don't like doctors of grace. They don't like the truth of the scriptures when it comes to salvation. That God actually knows who are his. What kind of God doesn't know who, whose people are whose? And so they're offended by that. And they say it's not fair. Well, he'll tell you what's not fair. All of us are sinners and that God would do anything for us. And so we, we, we study the scriptures in context with the doctrine of salvation, that, that great doctrine set firmly on our minds and on our hearts so we can understand these passages. Amen? Now these verses are meant to expose this heretical teaching here and the few that we're exercising within this disobedient church. Paul never gave these verses for instruction on baptism or salvation of the dead. This is another rebuke. Point two. The life giving labor for the hope of the resurrection. Oh, I love these verses. Look at this with me. Verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? Well, in order to drive this point home, here's what Paul's doing. He's adding an additional question, which takes in himself personally and, and a lot of his fellow laborers in the ministry of the gospel. And he's setting the Corinthians aside for a minute. He's pointing out to himself and these men and women who serve alongside him for the gospel. Why are we putting ourselves in such danger? It isn't hard to study through the book of Acts. You watch people's heads chopped off, thrown in prison, killed, stoned to death. You go to 2 Corinthians and Paul starts to list these dangers that he and his co-workers endure for the sake of the gospel like hunger and thirst and exposure and personal tax. You remember 2 Corinthians 11 where he says, dangers of this and dangers of that and dangers of this and dangers of that? He goes through this huge long list. Why do that? Look, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show you another passage. Here, here he's defending his apostolic ministry, but we begin to realize, why would he do this if you're just going to die and somebody else is going to pray over you in the grave or baptize over you, and you're going to get there anyway. Just go, just go live it up, whatever you want. Make sure you pay somebody enough money so they're going to be baptized for you after you die and just live your life any way you want. Why does he do this stuff? Look at verse 8, 2 Corinthians 4, 8. We are afflicted in every way. I, I, I mean, some of us are going through some hard things in here, but I don't think that's hard, that hard. Afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly, listen to that, constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so the life of Jesus also be manifest in our mortal flesh. Constantly. When they lopped Paul's head off at the end of 2 Timothy, his last letter, and imagine them stripping his body down, you imagine what he looked like? Beaten with lashes, 40 minus 1, several times. Stoned and left for dead. Shipwrecked. I, can you imagine what his body looked like? He said in the end of Galatians that he was branded for Christ. Now, I know it's metaphoric there, but he was branded. His scars said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world would he go through such a thing if he could just baptize people who are dead into the kingdom? It makes no sense to Paul, and it makes no sense to a real believer. And so, why would he put his life at risk is what he's saying. Why even preach the gospel? Just let people live any way they want die in their sins, and then just baptize them into the kingdom. And it's because of this, because Paul knew it was impossible. Think about that. It was impossible to obtain eternal life any other way except through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And look, nobody labored harder than the Apostle Paul. Nobody labored harder for the hope of the resurrection. Places like Acts chapter 20 in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians, he says, I labored day and night. I labored in tears over the flock of God. He loved the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters. When he's on trial and he comes before the Jewish council in Ephesus, there's just been a riot broke out. The soldiers had to pull him out or they were going to tear him to pieces. He says in his trial in Acts 23, verse 6, he says, Brother, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. And then he says this, I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's what he, he saw himself on trial for the hope of the resurrection. He says, Scott, why are you so wound up with this? Because of the hope of the resurrection. This is our motivating factor to live on this life that Jesus beat sin, Satan, and death. He rose from the dead bodily and he's going to rise us. I will preach that to my grave. With all the passion and authority I have because of what Jesus has done. Listen to him. He goes further. He gets in front of Felix, and he's in Caesarea now. Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Having a hope in God, he goes on to say that there. Uh, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So the hope of the resurrection was the driving force in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 31 with me. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Now, notice Paul loves the true Christians in Corinth church. And believe me, this is not a church that you would be looking up on the Internet and wanting to go to. It had a lot of problems, but Paul loved them, and you can see this come out, and it comes out again and again, and it emerges in this verse, and highlights that that he loves these people, but yet he's dying daily, and suffering in his ministry for their sake, for the purity of the gospel, and Paul may have been, maybe he was anticipating the Corinthians, saying, we just don't care about us. I, I think... I think there's no one who who had experienced the harshness of Corinth more than him. We looked at that in some of the early chapters. They mocked him. They talk about his voice, his eyesight. They, they, They chewed on him like crazy. They rejected him in so many ways after he spent a year and a half with him. They allowed these false teachers to come in who rejected Paul's doctrine. And yet, yet again and again, he calls them his spiritual brethren. He loves this church. And I think that's what we do when we have family members and church members who, who fall into sin. We stay in it with them. We don't destroy things. We, we become part of the solution to bring them back together. That's what we do. We fight for marriages. We fight for good parenting, Christ-centered parenting, gospel-centered parenting. We fight for our relationships. They're, they're worth it because Jesus Christ's name's at stake. And so we stay in these things. And I think that's Paul's doing. And notice he's affirming. It, it, the word is used for vows or to swear to something. He, he's, he's boasting in their position in Jesus Christ. There's true believers within this church. Yes, there's some heretics. Yes, there's some false teachers amongst them. But there's Christians. Paul often had to rebuke this church, and yet he always boasts in those who had true faith. Always. Now notice that little phrase at the end, dying daily. I I think this just came from Christ. Paul wasn't there when Jesus said this to the disciples, but certainly he heard it. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Crosses mean death, brothers and sisters. We bear a cross as Christians. There's many things we die to. We die to a, a godless world view, We die to that. We, we die to our own self having any ability to save ourselves. We die to those views that want to creep up and we say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ. There's nothing good in us. So, so we have to die to those things and Paul knew that, but he was willing to die to his own reputation because he loved this group. He wanted them to know Truth And so there's a sense that Paul is willing to die daily for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Christ, and for the sake of those believers. Will you die for family members? Will you die for people in this church? Die to your opinions? Die to your worldviews that are not biblical? Will you die? And I think that's what makes great churches. Churches that care for one another, give preference to one another, and have Christ in our marriages, in our homes, and in our BFGs and in our preaching and in our singing that's that's that preference that will die because we love Christ and we love you do you love one another in this church can you say can you turn to the people next to you front behind you around you I love you I love you and I'm willing to die to what I want to to see you know the Lord more so that's where we give up our time and our efforts and our monies all those things not because we have to but because we get to This is what Paul is about. Look at verse 32 with me. If from human motives, this is fascinating, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm not sure exactly what Paul was talking about here of going to the wild beast. He was a Roman citizen that would have most likely stopped him from getting thrown to the lions although we have record of Christians who were Roman citizens who did get eaten by the lions and went into some of those torturous times. But we do know he was in Asia. And Ephesus is in Asia. And let me read you a passage. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Just for the sake of time, let me read this to you. For we do not want you to be unaware, Paul says, to the church again. Now the second letter he's written to them, uh, second inspired, probably the fourth he's written to them. Brethren, our afflictions, what came to us in Asia, that's where Ephesus would have been, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. I was reading that passage this week and I thought, Lord, there's a couple times where I was not well that I thought about, I don't know if I'm going to live. But despairing of life, that's quite a term, isn't it? That's when a human gets to the point, I don't No, Lord, if I can do this any longer. That's what he said. I've got to that point. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. There were Christians in a Roman world, a Greek, godless, pagan world. They had the sentence of death written all over them because they were talking about salvation. The only way you get to the next life is through Jesus Christ alone. That did not fly in that culture. So the sentence of death was on them. Believers were moving that way here in this country goes on to say who delivered us speaking of God from such great peril of death and will deliver us he whom we have set our hope and he will deliver us you also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many well I'm not sure where these wild beasts come from I read many commentators on this verse and Some spoke of the riots in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Later in chapter 23, there was men like Demetrius the silversmith and Alexander the coppersmith. Both these, Paul says, did great harm to me. He warns Timothy of these men. They were probably there. They were idol makers. And then we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 that he was, he came He was rescued. He just says these words. I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now, that certainly could be metaphoric that he associated himself with what Daniel and his friends went through. He might have done that. But but here he's telling them, come to this point, um, I have suffered greatly. And if there's no resurrection, my entire ministry is worthless. That's what he's saying. Notice he says in verse 32, what prophet is it? I've done all this. I had everything. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had everything. I had all the money, the pride, the prestige. I had all of that. I could have just kept doing that if this isn't true. Playing the game. In verse 19 he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, I'm most pitied. Look at, at the end of verse 32. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. A passage comes right out up, Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. The prophet was warning Jerusalem of their lack of repentance and their worldliness. They were living like the pagans and then saying, well, God will deliver us. Jesus warns the rich fool who builds bigger barns, who says, take ease. Remember this? Luke chapter, oh, I forget where this is at. <laughs> this went out of my brain. Take ease and eat and drink and be merry. And then God says, tonight... You fool, your soul's required of you. See, this is a truth that is a, 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 a fallacy, excuse me, that has been carried down through time. It is the idea um, I don't care, we're just gonna, I'm gonna care, I don't care what happens to me, I'm just gonna live whatever. Paul's point is if Christ is not resurrected, if we're not resurrected, we've wasted all of our time. Third thought here. Verse 33, the corrupting morals of deadly deception. Look at verse 33 with me. You know this verse. You've heard it. You're maybe your parents said this to you. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is the second time Paul has used the word don't be deceived. The first one is in chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. And there he says don't be deceived. And he goes through a long list who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you remember, he works his way through liars and homosexualities and immoral people, infidels. I mean, all that stuff. He works his way all the way through that. And then he says, but such were some of you. Don't be deceived. You think, you think you can say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but there's nothing in my life to show the power of Christ can change. There's a whole lot of people in the world who say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, nothing's changed and here's, and here's what he said, well, Scott, isn't that works? No, what it is is a denial of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to change your life. Christ does not fail when he saves us. And it doesn't mean we're, we have this perfect line growing. <laughs> yeah, it's probably more like this, but we're growing. And we're repenting. And we walk with the Lord. And we know sin, and it's grievous to us because it's against our Savior who died for that. We know that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that want some Jesus in the back pocket, uh, Jesus in a genie bottle type of fire insurance. Those people do not know Christ. And so Paul here is admonishing them. He admonished them in chapter 6 to drop their immoral lifestyle and stop justifying it. And now he warns them of this deviant doctrine that, that denies believers bodily resurrection. Paul's been quick to realize that this church is immature and they've let perverted things get into them. They failed to see the issues and the consequences that would come. So Paul is reminding them that uh, of a well-known saying, bad company corrupts good morals. Now that word company is is a Greek word, we get our word homily from it. And it draws not so much to the conduct but the speech and Paul is saying, he's using this Greek word to say the language of these false teachers is deadly. In fact, when you chase that word down, it's actually used to pervert it. Th- that Greek word is used to pervert speech. He is saying those that are among you, those with perverted speech, corrupt your morals. He is saying that baptism from the dead... Putting your weight in salvation other than Jesus Christ is perverted speech. And it will lead you to death. That's how strong that language is. I think I've seen through the years of ministry, I've seen many people who come to churches like ours. We preach a gospel with no works involved in it. We We preach uh, what we call reformed doctrine, reformed soteriology. We're reformed in our soteriology. We believe that it's through Christ alone, through His grace alone, by faith alone. There's no works in it by ours. I've watched people say, "Well, that's good, great. I don't have to do anything. I don't walk in the aisles, say any prayers, show up. Don't have to do anything. I just believe that. I can do that. I've watched people. I've watched people in this church. They're not here anymore." It wouldn't last very long with this kind of preaching. I've watched them leave. You go, oh, yeah, I believe in doctrines, grace. And their life is just as worldly as ever. I've seen this for years and years. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's cool. I don't have to do anything. Christ did it all. Great, I'll buy that. See, that denies the power of Christ to change your life, change your heart, change your mind, change your character, change your person. He changes us. Once saved, always changing. That's the work of Christ, right? He's changing our lives. And So this is more the Corinthians church just adopting themselves like the world. Oh, we believe Jesus died, but ah, there's no resurrection. Or maybe there is, and we better baptize the dead. Last thought here, four. The distracting shame of sinful spiritual debauchery. Look at verse 34 with me. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, it seems Paul now turns his attention to the rest of the membership of the church. He has called out those who are deceiving them, and now he is targeting them. And he tells them, become sober-minded as you ought. This Greek word, eknepho, For sober, here is the idea of coming out of drunkenness. He chose these words carefully because he saw the Corinth church unable to think clearly. You've let false thinking come into your mind, and you're like a drunk person. You don't know what's right and wrong right now. Come out of that. That's a good warning. I'll tell you, if you dabble in sin, things you know that God does not want you in, you will be blinded from the truth. Even as a Christian. It's time to wake up. Time to come out of that. Time to obey the Lord in all things because you love him and because of what he did for you. So Paul was telling them to wake up. Do what you're supposed to do. Obey the Lord. And then he just says, stop sinning. Hermartano is the word where we get hermartiology, the doctrine of sin. He's in a present tense imperative. This is not, uh, he's not you know, say, well, maybe stop sinning. Maybe, maybe think about it. No, he's harsh. He's coming. Stop. Stop it now if you're a follower of Christ. He's worthy of your worship. Identify things in your life that are against God and stop them by the power of Christ. He gives you the power that through the word and through the spirit to stop sinning. This is what he's after. This is a stern warning. They've turned from the instruction of the doctrine of resurrection to this ridiculous, man-centered baptism for the dead. He's warning them, you're turning from fundamental teachings of the faith. Don't abandon the truth. Turn back. And then he says this, for some have no knowledge of God. Well, first, that Seems there's probably those that are among the church that aren't even saved, and, and God's being misrepresented to them. That's not God, that's you. That's you trying to do some man centered effort trying to get somebody into heaven. You're representing God wrong. Oh, how dare we ever do that! This is why, listen, we don't use God's name in vain. That, that is such a bad, horrible sinful representation of God. When people swear and use Jesus Christ's name or God's name, you're representing God. Who are you to use his name in that way? And so he says, look, you have no knowledge of God. You're using him wrong. Jesus was talking to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. He tells them this in Matthew 22, 29, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Remember the Sadducees, they're sad you see because they don't believe in the resurrection. He says, you don't believe in the power of God. I'm just going to die and I'm going to be a sparkly somewhere. You don't believe in the power of God. He's going to resurrect you. You're going to be you and I'm going to be me and Jesus is going to be him and we're going to see each other and we're going to eat together and we're going to spend eternity together and we're going to have lives that are 10,000 better than this one power God to do that and yet there's people that don't know Jesus Christ and doubtlessly they had friends and family who were still caught in false religions and here you're talking about these pagan things within the walls of Christianity there's those that don't know God see why it's important to get doctrine right brothers and sisters your friends and family are watching and they're listening get God right read your Bible study it Interpret it correctly. There's people watching. Notice he says, I speak this to your shame. I think Paul's challenging these members of this church. Get it right. Get the meaning of the resurrection right. Reject this false teaching. He's warning them, don't be like the false teachers who are ignorant of the doctrine of God. He does not want that church to lose its first love. And he's fighting for it. And brothers and sisters, we pray, we get on our knees and fight for our relatives on our knees, praying that God will expose to them the knowledge of who he is through Jesus Christ. And we are never to be ashamed of who he is. Are you? I, I think when you look for alternative methods to get people into heaven, you're ashamed of Jesus Christ. You're ashamed of a, one who died on a cross and was laid, laid in a cold grave. You're ashamed of the one who beat death and sin and Satan. You try to teach any other way, any kind of man effort, you're ashamed of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in front of the Father. Are you a Judas or are you a Peter? Both men failed. One, One had no option, he just had to check out. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Peter, he repented, he got God right. He said, he'll forgive me, because he died for me. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ, and Christ restored him. He went on to have a marvelous ministry. History tells us he was crucified upside down, because he said, I don't deserve to die like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. And they said, we will, because he loved the gospel, and he wouldn't compromise. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. This is a staggering passage. It has been one that has been tortured by false teachers. It's been plucked out of context. It has been not taught as truth. It just added to man's works to try to gain heaven and gain God in some way. And it has has confused the masses. And actually deceived them. But I love, Lord, that you laid that on Paul's heart so that we recognize when false teaching makes its way within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be taken care of. Because what's at at stake is eternal life. And so, Lord, we never want to get in the way of the true teaching of Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. We never want to get in the way of any of that, Lord. And so, Lord, cause Riverbend to be a stalwart, a, a beacon in a dark world, that we have the message of Jesus Christ alone. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't, cannot say right now that I know that I would go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ if I died right now. Lord, I pray, I ask you, open their hearts. Cause them to have faith in Jesus Christ's perfect death, burial, and resurrection. Give them life eternal. Lord, for those of us that know you, Lord, help us live that. You're, You're not some kind of Jesus in a genie bottle. You're our life. You're everything to us. Cause us to live in such a way that we glorify you in both word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen.